Hi, this is Media Girlfriends, and I'm the Nabba Duncan. This podcast is about my girlfriends who work in the media. And this episode is with Lorraine Chuen. Lorraine is a storyteller in two ways. The first is that she made a comic about growing up Chinese Canadian in a small town. And the second is that she tells stories around issues on diversity through data analysis and infographics. And I just met Lorraine through Twitter. Uh, I have another media girlfriend named Pasenf Matar. She's a producer at CBC Radio, great producer. And she tweeted about Lorraine's comic. And I read it and I thought it was engaging and really honest and relatable. And then I dug a little bit deeper and found out about uh, the blog that Lorraine has called Intersectional Analysis, where she takes different data around uh, topics on diversity and then illustrates them. So I asked her if she wanted to sit down and talk, and she said yes. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) So what was the story you told in your zine? In my zine, um, it was a collection of stories. And they all have to do with being a Chinese Canadian. Um, So some of them are about my childhood and some of them are about my adult life. Um, And the stories sort of juxtapose sort of the care and kindness and love that's expressed in immigrant families um, in sort of like the subtle ways that aren't very explicit. um, And it juxtaposes that with navigating white spaces as like a person or kid of color um, and sort of like the lack of kindness that you experience. One of the stories that touched me was the one about your grandma. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you describe that one? The one about the writing? Yeah. Okay. Um, So that was a story about my grandma being illiterate, and it's sort of linked to a story about my grandfather as well, and sort of my grandfather passing away, and then which led me to reflect about how my grandmother experienced like loneliness and grief. Um, so that's the context. Um, and then the story is about how my grandma doesn't know how to read or write. Um, And she often says that because she doesn't know how to read or write, that she's useless, Mm. which obviously is not true. Um, But both like when my grandfather was alive, he also said that as well. They would be like, which in Cantonese means I have no use. So your your grandfather would say that about himself and your grandma would say that about. Yeah, they both say like my my grandpa said it a lot and my grandma um, still says it a lot. Um, and what was your response whenever they said that? Like, what did you say? My Cantonese is not very good, but I would say, like, don't say that. Right. It's not true. Um, was that an expected response or just how you felt? It was just how I felt. Um, and I'm not super articulate, but I wanted to communicate to them that mm-hmm. it's, like, not true. Yeah. Because they've, like, immigrated, they raised children, grandchildren, like, obviously not useless. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Um, there was another story for me that was heartbreaking, and it was about you being teased and the eyelids. Can you describe that one? Sure. Um, so I guess for a lot of East Asians, um, they don't have, like, a flip on their eyelid. I don't know how to explain it, but... Um, 
for like many Caucasians, there is like white people, there's like a double flip on your, there's like a piece of skin and then there's like a line on top. And I only had that on one of my eyes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm very asymmetrical. Um, I really wanted like the flip on the other eye. Um, And as a kid, my mom would say, oh, there's like a strategy. There's like a tip that she used to do like growing up, which is like putting a piece of tape on her eyelid. That she used to do. Yeah. Um, Here in Canada. Um, I don't know if it was in Canada. I think it might have even been like growing when she was growing up in uh, Macau okay. or when she was in Hong Kong. Um, but yeah, you put like a piece of tape, like a little piece of tape on your eyelid. And then eventually when you take it off, there's supposed to be a flip on your eye. Like you have a double eyelid after that. Um, and in the story, you do that. Yeah, in the story, I do that. It's like semi-autobiographical. Like I can't remember when exactly I did that, but I do remember doing it as a kid. Um, and it was really interesting because like, I put the story on the internet, and then a lot of people said that they did that when like, growing up as well. So their parents also taught them that trick. So it was not like specific to my mother. Yeah. It's like an actual thing that people do. Where was that? Is that born out of like wanting to be more like the kids in your class? I think I didn't realize this growing up, but I I grew up in a very small town in Ontario, which um, is mostly white people. We were like one of a few, like a handful of Trenton, Ontario. Okay. I I grew up in Newmarket, which is not as small, but. Yeah, Trenton's very small. It's like off the 401. That's how most people know of it, if they know of it. Um, And I didn't realize it growing up, but I think now that I'm older, I realized there was like a lot of internalized self-hatred and it wasn't like, I never explicitly said like, I I don't like the way I look, but it manifests in like behaviors and things that I would say, um, like things that I would pretend, like I pretended that I didn't know how to speak Chinese when I was at school. Yeah. Like if I was interacting with my parents in front of my classmates, even in high school, which is like very old, um, I would just pretend that like I spoke English to them, which is like, I definitely don't do that at home. I do not speak English to them. Yeah. um, Did anybody ever call you out on it? I remember feeling really uncomfortable because I I befriended an exchange student from Hong Kong Uh in like grade nine. And I, like, really didn't want anyone to know that I spoke Cantonese. So oh. if I was afraid, she would, like, ask me. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, which in retrospect, like, I'm I'm so ashamed that I, I acted this way. But I also think I was, like, socialized. Um, to be that way. To be that way. Yeah. Um, have you always been drawing? No, not at all. Um, like, when I was a child. <laughs> but, yeah, I definitely would not call myself an illustrator like I feel a lot of imposter syndrome calling myself like a comic artist yeah just because I know a lot of people actually know how to draw I don't know one of them Um, but like I would never know that from looking at your stuff you you know what I mean like it's so no well I'm just being honest but I understand that feeling of feeling like you imposter yeah totally 100% I just got a new job and that's exactly how I feel (laughs) right now yeah I think the cool thing about comics is that you can have like, you don't need to be, like, a virtuoso at drawing. Yeah. And it can just be, like, the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't need to be uh, super detailed. Like, all I wanted to do was tell a story. And, like, and that's the because you were writing before, it. right? Yeah. So I would – I have less imposter syndrome calling myself a writer, even though <laughs> even then I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I totally get that. So uh, you were – so then why did you choose – drawing like at what point did you choose illustration to tell your story there were 
like the eyelid story was a short story initially and it was like a fully fleshed out short story that sort of juxtaposed um navigating white spaces as a child and then the second part of the story was like navigating white spaces as an adult Mm -hmm. and I wrote the whole story and it for some reason, it didn't work. It seemed very trite when I said it, like wrote it in words. Um, so last summer, I decided I would try to make a web comic, and that didn't really work out. But I, I <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Just like side projects, okay, like okay. you start yeah, them, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and then, then it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I, I, I think at that point, I realized that there are some feelings or stories that could be communicated in a way where it sort of works visually. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to explain this. Like sometimes when something it's just is, a better way to tell the story. Yeah, when something is like simple, but you put it in words, it feels like really trite, like it feels like a cheesy poem or something, but mm-hmm. somehow in comic form or like in storybook form, um, it's okay that it's a little bit cheesy and it can still resonate with people. Well, it totally resonated with me, even though like I don't have the same experience mm-hmm. of the eyelid thing, but I do understand that feeling of just like not being the same as the other kids. Mm-hmm, in your class, exactly. You know what I mean? So I I appreciate I appreciated that. Um, you use illustration illustration for your blog. Um, t- what's your blog about? Intersectional analysts. Yeah. Okay, uh, so that is a blog that um, uses data visualization as well as like graphic design through infographics to explore social issues around uh, gender and race, hence like, intersectional for like intersectional feminism of and course. analysts to sort of refer to the, de- the data visualization aspect of the blog. Um, How did that start? Uh, That started a few years ago when I was at the tail end of grad school. So I was doing a master's um, in experimental psychology. So I was doing a lot of data analysis. Oh, my God. Um, I did psychology. Oh, really? (laughs) I didn't do experimental psychology, but, yeah, a lot of data to look at. It was was okay. (laughs) You can say if it sucked. Oh, I know. I'm worried my supervisor will hear this. Oh, gosh. Um, well, it, it's it, it's okay if it's true that it just wasn't as interesting to you as what you're doing now, right? Yeah, I just became very jaded in grad school, and I, I wasn't right. happy. Like, I was planning on doing a PhD in research, and it wasn't working out. So, um, But I was, yeah, I was, like, writing my thesis, I was analyzing data, and I was talking a lot to my friend who has more of a journalism background, and we we were both starting to like take on more creative endeavors and we're like we should collaborate on something like we should blend like my like data analysis background with your journalism background and like we could totally start a blog about like using these skill sets and I had recently like gotten interested in like data journalism Mm -hmm. I think it's like in the last five years or six years has gotten popular in like using data and graphics to tell news stories Mm -hmm. or to like explore issues in a deeper manner um, so yeah, me and my friend were like, oh, we should like totally collaborate on a post and, a, and she's also like super into pop culture. This is my friend TK. Um, <laughs> so we, our first post was like analyzing the history of the MTV VMAs, um, and seeing if there was like a racial bias in terms of who gets nominated for the awards. And what did you find? Uh, what we found was we compared it against, um, the Billboard Hot 100 mm-hmm. to see like what kind of music 
was popular at the time versus who was being recognized mm-hmm. by MTV. Um, and what we found uh, was that even in the years where music uh, by Black artists was very popular, white artists were still being disproportionately recognized um, mm. in the MTV uh, VMA nominations. Big surprise. Big surprise. Yeah. <laughs> And it, I'm it's so surprised one, to hear yeah, that. Yeah, not surprising at all, but sometimes, um, like, people, like, I think when you just, like, read comments on articles, which you should never do, um, people... <laughs> <laughs> you really shouldn't, but I do it, too. Yeah, but people will be like, like, where's the data? Like, we won't believe you unless there's data to show it. Like, so we're like, we'll show you the data. <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of, like, part of the motivation of having the blog. So then um, you showed the data through an illustration, and that's the one that you did? Uh, we showed the data through like a plot. Okay. Um, yeah, so we like plotted the the trend trend over the years. That one was a while ago. I hope I summarized the results well, that's okay. quickly. I'm also interested in the in your most recent one. You did a food one. Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. So that one was also stemmed from me reading the comments section, <laughs> um, and I think my friend had made a Facebook post about food being political for people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, especially around things like cultural appropriation and how food is like deeply linked to identity for Mm -hmm. many people of color. Um, And a lot of people were just like, like food is just food. Why can't you just enjoy it? Like it's the same for everyone, no matter where you are. See, I I hear that and I just find it laughable. Mm -hmm. But go on. And then after that, I was like, I think there's something like, like the, I think there's a blog post there, but I don't really know what it is. And I would go around and I would notice things like I would go to bookstores and I would notice uh, cookbooks on like Chinese food that were authored by like white women. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go to like like in Toronto, there's so many restaurants that specialize in like quote unquote ethnic cuisine, and I'd be like, are these like owned by white people? Right. Um, and I started noticing them more and more, and I was like, I think this can be quantified through data somehow, but I don't really know what it is. So I like pondered on it for a little while. And then uh, someone suggested that I look at the New York Times recipes collection because mm-hmm. they have this huge um, database of recipes that they store online. Um, and sort of, sort of the data is already there, just not the information about the race right. of the recipe writers. Right. Um, so I like downloaded the data set or like parts of it and they're like tagged with the type of cuisine that the dish is. Okay. So it's, there's like a, like thousands and thousands and thousands of recipes on this database. Um, so I would like look at all the Chinese recipes and, um, or recipes tagged as Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would look at who was listed under the byline of those recipes. Mm-hmm. And then um, I would see what their background was so if mm-hmm. they're white or if they're Chinese um, and then what I found was that disproportionately uh, for a number of different types of cuisines uh, white people were listed like most frequently as a recipe authors mm-hmm. like disproportionately then like it wasn't mostly Chinese people writing the Chinese recipes mm-hmm. it was white people mm-hmm. um, so that was sort of a comment I wanted to make on like, like the blog post is titled "Who Get Food, Race, and Power: Who Gets to Be an Authority?" Right on quote unquote ethnic cuisines. Um, Did you have an answer to that question? I think. Well, I think that the data sort of speaks for itself. Like, 
I think what I was trying to show was like the audience finds more value in the recipe sometimes if it's authored by a white person or the, or white people get a larger audience or the ones like at the platform to write about these things. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are able to profit um, when they run restaurants mm-hmm. um, that feature these foods. And what do you think of that? Like, what's your opinion on that? I think one thing that I write in the article is that there's something there, there's something that feels very wrong when like food is stripped from its like history and its context. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so uh, for me, like I haven't been back to Hong- I haven't been to Hong Kong that many times. Um, but I feel like food is something that reminds like like home is like a very complicated concept yeah, for children it. of immigrants. Yeah. But when I'm eating like Chinese food or Cantonese food, uh, I feel like a sense of home. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a lot of like memories and history attached to it. And I think there's something interesting when you're going to a restaurant that's owned by white people that's serving ethnic food. Um, and then most of the people that are coming to eat there are also white. Mm-hmm. So then it's like white people serving food for white people, but it's food taken from another culture. And mm-hmm. it's like you want to you want to experience like certain parts of the culture, mm-hmm. but not like not others, maybe. Yeah. Or, or not the people. Mm-hmm. You want the food, but you, you don't want the people. Um, yeah, so that's something I was trying to get at, at the in the blog post, and I wanted to show it in numbers because we. I think there are. It's a very popular conversation to talk mm-hmm. about like food and cultural appropriation, and then a lot of people just simply don't believe that there is a systemic trend happening. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to show. That's the first negative comment that comes to mind is you know, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, aren't people? Aren't we supposed to share yeah, the food? Yeah, or aren't yeah. we supposed to? But like. So Chinese food, Italian food, um, Indian food um, is out there in restaurants. But I have no idea how I would feel if there were like six Ganyan restaurants in Toronto and they were owned by white people or run by white people. Mm. I I can just imagine how uncomfortable that might make me feel. Mm, Because it's, you know, it's like trendy. It's like cool now. Yeah. I think especially since for a lot of like immigrants or children of immigrants, there's also this discrepancy where you bring this food to school and you're a kid and it's like stinky and gross yeah. and uncool and it's like linked to like minor trauma. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, and then now it's like suddenly cool mm-hmm. and you're going to pay like X amount of dollars. Exactly. You're going to pay more money when it's made by a white person. <laughs> yeah. But when it's being served by POCs and you expect there's like this automatic expectation that it should be like super cheap and like a good deal. So if I was to like take this further, my thought is then that if this is how I feel that I shouldn't go to an Asian restaurant or that perhaps I shouldn't go to an Italian restaurant or food that serves Italian food unless it's run by Italian people. Do you think that's where logically it should go? Like, do you agree with that kind of thinking? I don't really know what, like, the quote-unquote the solution is, but yeah, I, think, do I. I think it's just, like, in, in my blog post, I write, like, as consumers, just be a little bit more, like, conscious. Mm-hmm. Like, if, you, if you're buying a cookbook 
maybe look at who's writing the cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about being um, intentional or conscious. Mm-hmm, that's about, what I would think. Yeah. Or like in Toronto, there's so many awesome restaurants mm-hmm. like in Chinatown that are run by immigrants. Yeah. Um, but I still feel like some people will prefer to go to like a really upscale, hip <laughs> um, restaurant that's serving Chinese food that's owned by white people. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. I, I have a the, feeling I probably have. Sorry? Uh-huh. Maybe because of like... The ambiance, the ambiance yeah, it's more really fancy not. or whatever. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm thinking, if, I, if I'm being honest, I'm pretty sure that I've been to Asian restaurants that were mm-hmm. not run by Asian people. So I'm right now, as we're talking, I feel weird about that. I feel like, have I? It's a, it's a perspective I haven't thought about. You know, am I, am I being sort of um, um, unfair or, or like insensitive to my other sort of sisters and brothers mm-hmm. of? of color who are sort of like going through this kind of stuff but like me because of my you know I've my privileged lifestyle I can go to like many restaurants here mm-hmm. in the city so I don't know yeah I don't really know I I wasn't really offering a solution no 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 I'm not in the post. I'm sorry I'm not oh, expecting no, 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 a, a solution no, no. it's yeah. hard for me not to think like oh frig like what am I what yeah what I, do I do what do I do with this information yeah mm-hmm. hmm. so um what are you gonna do next what am I going on the blog? Yeah. Uh, I'm brainstorming. I'm, I'm currently working with a couple of friends. We're still like in talks, but they're interested in incarceration, which is something I don't know a lot about. Um, but I think the cool thing about this blog is that it allows me to like learn about issues that I, I don't really know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we might be doing something around like inmate pay in Canada, um, hmm. which is like abysmal. Um, yeah, I won't say any more about that because okay. we're, still, we're still brainstorming. That's fine. Thank you so much. This no is great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and good luck on your, are you going to do more zines? Yeah, I definitely want to work on another comic. Um, I feel like after spending some time like really pouring yourself into something that I like need a break so after I finished that comic I just like I vegged yeah. for two weeks in terms of like writing or drawing yeah. um but yeah I definitely plan on doing another okay, one good link me let me know I will I'll send you the URL <laughs> okay thank you thanks You're listening to Media Girlfriends. That was Lorraine Chuen. She runs the blog Intersectional Analyst, where she illustrates data that she collects about diversity. And I just met her through Twitter when she released her comic about life as a young Chinese girl in a small town. You know when you think that you have an idea of someone's perspective um, and then you realize you really don't know? That's pretty much what was happening to me when Lorraine was describing the weirdness of seeing restaurants serve food that means home to her, but knowing that they didn't grow up with the food like she did and knowing that they're making money off of it. Like she said, she doesn't know what the solution is, and I have to say, I don't either. Um, But um, yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. It's hard. Thank you for listening. And thank you also if you've been tweeting about Media Girlfriends and telling people about it. I really appreciate it. And keep sending your suggestions on other Media Girlfriends. Media Girlfriends is produced by me, Nanaba Duncan. It is on iTunes and SoundCloud. And it's on Twitter, at MediaGFS. And the hashtag is Media Girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs>